Hey everybody, what's up? This is Ari in the Air, the How to Adventure podcast. Happy New Year to ya. I'm down here in Mexico, spending some time with family, doing a lot of paragliding, doing a lot of highlining, having a blast, eating tacos, getting fat. But I'm away from my studio, so my ability to perfectly record podcasts is sacrificed, but I think you guys will deal. So, excuse the barking dogs, excuse the honking horns and the slamming doors in the next couple of episodes, but I got some things I want to talk about, so I'm going to have to record it on the fly here in Aguas Calientes. I am in the physical center of the country. The thermals are strong, the sun is hot. But it's winter, so the shade is cool. It's pretty nice. So, today I want to share with you a talk that I had with Mr. Paul Thomasberg. Paul Thomasberg is a mountain bike hall of famer for a long time. And as you will hear, he has been developing mountain bike technology since the early 70s. When he was in high school, He had a shop teacher who started giving him credit to modify his own bike and to create his own bike frames and learn how to weld and all this stuff. So he was also the first person that ever put a shifter under the handlebar, which it's kind of a big deal. So Paul's been around. He also, on the side of his sprinter van, has the words legalize the Constitution. So he has some strong thoughts on politics and philosophy that we kind of get into. But for the most part, we talk about mountain biking. We talk about making our own stuff. Um, But yeah, it was a good talk. Paul's kind of long-winded, but he's a very, very smart person. He's a tinkerer. He is a tinkerer to the max, and you can tell. He's not exactly an orator, but if you're familiar with mountain bikes, then I think that a lot of this stuff will make sense to you. So, without further ado, here's my talk with Mr. Paul Thomasberg. Enjoy. Paul, thanks for agreeing to be on the podcast. Uh, thanks for inviting me. So I think that to start, I'm pretty curious. I did some research on the Paul Thomas Bird Mountain Bike Hall of Fame. Mm. I've been friends with your daughter for a long time and didn't have any idea that you were a mountain biker whatsoever until Adam told me, until I took Chris to Adam's house and yeah. they looked at each other and were like, huh, <laughs> it's kind of a small world. Yeah, small world. Um, but I'd like to hear kind of your history in mountain biking and the role that you've played. Okay. Um, well, man, it goes way back. I was always into bikes when I was a young kid. And we were in Tahoe, uh, Tahoe City area, North Shore. And, um, we're talking like grade school, you know, and I had like my parents, I didn't, we didn't have a lot of money. And so I had like 
you know, Ace Hardware bikes, you know, and, um, but I was basically mountain biking back then, you know, even though, like, I remember, like, this one bike I got, it came with a slick, and all I wanted was a knobby, I'm like, I just want a knobby, you know, and uh, so it kind of started a long time ago when I was, um, yeah, in Tahoe there, and uh, then I moved to Davis, California, and that's a huge bike bike thing going on there. And I think one thing that was real, I was always on bikes all the time. Like I was always on bikes and, uh, I like really started building mountain bikes about 1976, you know? So I would take, you know, the cruisers, these old, um, cruisers and, um, uh, like rebuild those, uh, with, um, you know, motorcycle handlebars and BMX parts and uh, 10 speed parts and other stuff like that and make these things that were mountain bikes. And, you know, some of the stuff I did that was kind of unique was like I would use like 110 front axle spacing silky horse cart hubs with 3 8 bolt through axle. This is in 76, you know, and uh, I had 140 rear end with a uh, 18 inch motorcycle rim and a 3.0 tire on the rear. And uh, on the front, like on the tires, what I used to do is cut to cut the, cut the beads off of a tire and put that inside of another tire to make like super bomber casing tires, you know? So it's kind of funny, all the stuff that's going on is not really, there's a lot of stuff that isn't that new, but then I had, uh, you know, one thing that happened was I had this uh, high school teacher, Dave Egoff, and he was my math teacher, but also he was a, um, he was kind of like shop teacher. And um, he's like, look, anything you do to your bike that the bike shop either can't or won't do or any modifications, like he saw what was going on and I wasn't really into cars. And he's like, look, anything you can do to your bike that the bike shop can't or won't do, then I'll give you, you know, electric credit for it. And I'm like, cool. He's just like, you just got to write a little little report about what you did and why you did it, you know, and show, show it to me. And then and in the school that I was in, it's kind of like an alternative school. It was a con, like we, we negotiated with teachers uh, contractually for how many credits we would get for what work. So we had to negotiate with the teachers all the time, you know, and like, and of course you learn some negotiating skill because you're like, you want to work less for more credits, you know, like, so you're like, this book's going to be really hard, you know? <laughs> but anyway, it was just the school I went to. And this, this teacher was pretty influential only because turns out I still make a good part of my living by doing exactly what I was doing in high school. You know? yeah. So I'm contract contracting with people to uh, explain to them all the cool stuff that we should do to bikes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so. and you were making those modifications back in high school because you wanted to ride your bike in a different way that there yeah. weren't parts for. Right, exactly. So we were, there was this, I, we lived pretty close to the Berryessa, uh, Lake Berryessa and the Vaca Mountains there. And there was originally, like some of the first mountain biking I did is all on private land. You know, most, there's a few roads that weren't private, but they weren't really, the good riding was all on private land, you know. And so we would run into the landowners, some of which were like, you know, they were a little bit rough around the edges. Let's just put it that way. I got brandished more than once out there. But then we'd like beg for mercy and be like, hey, 
we just want to ride, you know, this is where we're going, and we'd talk them down, and they'd put the gun down, and we'd be like, hey, man, we're not, you know, they're like, okay, just don't ride by the cabin, you know, and you can do this route, we don't care, you know, and so we had this whole network of trails that we ultimately had permission to ride, and of course that was, you knew it was a, just a matter of time before it ended, you know, like, because... And it, mountain biking was not a popular thing then, right? So we were like, really, it was still very cold in the 70s, you know. It was very, very cold. It was before racing really took off and, and um, wasn't mainstream at all. So you were doing bike development, land access litigation, and trail building, <laughs> like pretty much right from the get-go. Yeah, kind of, yeah. <laughs> So yeah. you've just done the same thing for the rest yeah, of your of, life. Yeah, kind of been re- all related to that, you know, sort of. And uh, unknowing, you know, just the way that's all worked out is kind of a, a bit of, you know, later on in life sort of rediscovering just the concept of sort of creating your own reality, you know, or whatever. And, and you know, I get caught up in the in the fixed world by my own character defects all the time like we all do right but I really sort of try to do that and try to live that way you know try to just create it and I think unconsciously I was doing it at some point in my life but then later on in my life I think it was easier to get into some sort of a financial rut or this kind of rut or that kind of rut and then and then ask yourself you know where where am I stuck and why you know so at what point did you start writing I guess with not necessarily professionally but with intent that you knew that it was what you were gonna do that's a great question I met this guy his name was Wild Bill and uh, I met him riding with some people and when I first started riding I refused to wear a I wouldn't wear a jersey with a logo on it we didn't we well I had Levi's so I must have had a logo on my Levi's right so it was Levi's Vask Hiker 2's you know, so like hiking boots and um, like real hiking boots. And, uh, you know, I think my first helmet was like a rock climbing helmet, MSK. I think it was MSK rock climbing helmet with six holes in it. And um, but anyway, I met this guy. So but anyway, so my bike never and by that time, by the time I met Wild Bill, I was building my own frame. So I met this guy. Maybe we'll hit that story later. But I met this guy, Wild Bill. But the thing was, is I didn't have any logos on my bike. I would only have plain paint. And in fact, on the ones that I built, I was like, ah, paint is such a waste. I'm just going to put a grease on it so it doesn't rust, you know? And uh, like, it's about the bike. It's about riding the bike. Like, I didn't really care about the paint, you know? And um, I didn't want it to rot, but I was just like, seemed completely unnecessary to put paint on it. And I didn't want jerseys on me that had logos, right? And so Wild Bill's like, you got to race. You just need to go. You know, you need to go do this race. We're going to go do Whiskey Town, and uh, you need to go do Whiskey Town. Or uh, maybe it was Spring Fling. I can't remember. It was some old, old Central California race, and the first one I ever did. And um, uh, it was funny because I, uh, it was just so the epitome opposite of what I believed in as far as riding. Like, I just felt like racing was totally sold out, you know. And that was when racing was just starting. It was kind of funny, you know, looking back on that. It was a, it was a sellout thing yeah. in, in its infancy. Yeah, right. Okay, so were you on that first competition? Were you on one of your own Franken bikes? 
Yeah, probably. Yeah, well, let's, yeah, I'm sure I was. Yep, I was building my own bike. So by the time I did a race, and then, you know, the crazy thing about the first race I did was I was like, well, I'm faster than most of the people except for the pros going downhill. Like, I'm way faster than most of the people here. But I couldn't ride, and my bike was, like, I was basically building, you know, what would have been an enduro bike back then and racing it in cross-country races, you know? So it was kind of like this weird dichotomy, like the kind of riding I was doing and what was really going on with racing. That was kind of before downhill racing. And there was a couple downhill races, but it wasn't, it was before it started getting more specialized as far as the, the events. And, um... But my bikes that I built were, you know, long and really laid back head tubes and they were designed to not break in half when you got too much air, you know, or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and so um, they were too slow for racing, you know. So then there was this evolution and, and uh, about, you know, what kind of frames I was doing and why I was doing it and how to build lighter stuff that was still stiff and strong and all that, you know. Okay, so at what point did you start like building bikes with intention or with support. I yeah. Suppose. So I think that really started in the seventies too. So by 1978, 76 was the first bike I built that it was kind of, it really was a mountain bike. It had 15 speeds and, and it had a bunch of stuff that was this cobbled together mountain bike basically. And, um, and I didn't know about the guys in Marin at that point. I'd never even heard of them, you know, and uh, not very long after that, by late 70s, early 80s, I, you know, was introduced to the whole other thing that was going on down there. And um, what is that whole other thing? Oh, just like, you know, Tom Ritchie and, and uh, Gary Fisher and everybody that was sort of the, you know, where mountain biking was born. But actually, if you're historically correct, mountain biking has been going on for a very, very long time because... You know, in America, there weren't any paved roads for a very long time and people have been riding, you know, anyway. Mountain biking is nothing new, you know. That's the cool thing about history is you go back through and see all these ideas that, that were around a long time ago. And people, it either didn't catch on as a thing or just, you know, it's all timing and and what what happens as far as that, you know, how things come about. But, but uh, yeah, so I met this guy, Dave Peterson, I actually just talked to him the other day. He lives in Italy now, but um, he and this other lady... Uh, well, before that was this kid, this bike shop. Anyway, it had been around since the twenties originally, and um, a super super old bike shop. But by that point, like the motorcycle guy, the motorcycle shop guys had barely let me in the door unless I had cash. Most of the bike shops kicked me out because I just wanted free parts and and you know anything I could get. Can I go through your drawers? I'm looking for this certain part. You know, like I need to find this thing. You know that I'm looking for. I just need to go through your drawers. I'm not going to steal anything. I just need to look. And they're like, well, what do you need? And I go, well, I need to look at all your stuff. You know, that's what I need. And so they all kick me out except for this couple. So they 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 were the mechanics at the shop, and then they bought it. And once they bought it, I got allowed into the bowels of the shop. You know, the junk drawers. Yeah, and yeah, and it was cool because it was from the '30s. I still have my my workbench out here is from that bike shop. So the workbench I have that I work on bikes still is from the 1930s bike shop, and uh, so it's pretty cool. But they um, they they let me in. So it's Brand Brandon Dave Peterson, and um, then I got introduced to this guy Kimo Tanaka, who was and. 
somewhere, I can't remember, originally he wasn't working in the shop, but at some point he was working in the bike shop building frames, like a, you know, custom in-shop frame builder dude. And so, and he was doing his other, he had some other bikes, but he was working in the shop and you could go to this shop. It was like a really, you know, back in the day, full on, come in, get your measurements, get your frame. They build all the wheels, do everything for you all. Just, you want a custom bike, come to our shop, you know? And so I met this guy. And then the first thing we started doing was um, just reinforcing my bikes or fixing them when they were broken, you know, like break the frames and forks and stuff. And so we would, you know, reinforce them and try to beef them up and do stuff and then i would have all these crazy ideas like well i want to use a tandem hub with a you know i want to use this tandem hub with a uh, with a motorcycle rim and a 3.0 18 inch motorcycle tire because i don't want to get flats anymore and i want to hit stuff really hard you know and and so and then the, the like the silk the horse cart hub i told you about well i found that in a drawer you know and I'm like, cool, it bolts on. There's no way your front wheel can fall off. You know, like it was so obvious way back then. Like, of course you want stuff bolted on on a bike that you're flying through the air in, you know. Yeah. But uh, so it was, you know, those are key people. Kimo Tanaka, who I, I apprenticed with him for a long time um, and just filed. But watched him braze, so I think, for at least two years. And then when I finally picked up a torch and started brazing, it was actually really easy because I just absorbed that, you know. And then, um, then this other guy, uh, Rick Jorgensen, came on to the scene, and he's the maker of Tango Tandems. And um, he was a civil engineer, bridge engineer by trade, working for Caltrans, right? So he had all this um, engineering knowledge, you know. And so they were going to, like, I helped build this one bike. It was a four-man bike, and he did all these crazy up tube tandem designs. He was a tandem frame builder, but he was working with Chemo. So he was kind of like the brains and Chemo would help him put this, these concepts together. So they draw this stuff up based on sort of current bike geometry and then put some, you know, for the day, really high end engineering into the frame, you know, mm -hmm. so it was going to be really super rigid this way and more compliant this way and be able to resist all these other forces. So hanging around with that whole thing was, um, you know, uh, I learned a lot of stuff. And so some of the stuff I'd already inherently figured out, like, you know, I wanted the, the bike felt totally different when the hubs were wider and the wheels were stiffer and the wheels were, uh, were stronger. They didn't go out true as easy and stuff. So there's a lot of stuff that I'd picked up on before I started working with him. But then he started teaching me some very basic engineering concepts about diameter of the tube versus wall thickness and all this kind of stuff and there's some of the basic principles that still hold true today you know the basic differences between like aluminum and titanium and steel and how those weight stiffness ratio things all blend together you know yeah. what that actually does and so i was actually the first person that was that i know of that i built a, a mountain bike um, that had an inch and a half down tube and an inch and a quarter seat tube. And back then, I mean, there wasn't even a derailleur. You couldn't fit a derailleur on it. You know, the only derailleur that would fit was a modified braze-on uh, road derailleur because you could braze the, the tab on the side of the tube, you know. But back then, basically, everybody was using one-inch tubes, you know. Like, there were still one-inch tubes. Like, the first mountain bike tube was, like, inch and a quarter. Now, one-inch was top. There was inch inch and an eighth 
There was inch and eighth road tubes. And then mountain bikes finally went to inch and a quarter down tube. But by the time mountain bikes went to inch and a quarter down tube, I was already at inch and a half down tube. But because of material, because of steel, I ended up, the, the wall, it was too heavy to get the right stiffness that I needed, you know? So I went back to inch and three, ended up at inch and three eighths on that. But anyway, there's a, working with Rick Jorgensen, which was where I really learned sort of the beginning of a lot of um, engineering concepts that are applicable to bicycles, you know? And now what is your, your role in developing mountain bikes? Well, that's a long story too, but I've been working with Shimano since 1990 so that was when I first before that I was racing professionally and I, I raced professionally till like 1997 and um, but in 1990 um, Shimano I was doing some work with them I was kind of racing and I had some like incentive packages with them like you know if you place top three or whatever you get X and some stuff like that but um, I'd been working with some guys and they'd be there and they're like well we want you to try this new chain or this or that or whatever and um give some feedback on it you know and and i've been doing that uh yeah there's a bunch in between there where he's totally skipped over ird so there's a whole another what's ird ird is interlock racing design so is a company that was way ahead of its time introduced um, really early suspension technology and the guy was he was in Winters, California when I was in Davis and I ran into him and he was making tractor parts and he's like, I can make a seat post that's better than that. And I'm like, okay, do it. And then he came up with all these crazy, you know, kind of overcomplicated designs, but really cool, you know, just to make a just to make a nice handmade seat post, you know. And so I handed him a campy record seat post and I go, This is the simplest, most bomber seat post that anybody's ever made to date study this seat post you know this is the one you need to study and then actually worked with him on a bunch of different ideas like we we did the first ever taper wall hand, handlebar you know where the the wall thickness in the handlebar is different first taper wall handlebar we did a bunch of early high power brakes that most people don't even know about and um you know there was an element of the original seat post original ird seat post that he actually ended up getting a patent on the concept that was my idea originally, you know, and I said, yeah, that's cool. Go ahead. I don't, you know, great. Hey, good seat post. Let's keep going. And, and then he got me into uh, WTB, which you've probably heard of, Wilderness Trail Bikes. Yeah. And so uh, Mark Slate and Charlie Cunningham and Steve Potts uh, were the three main primary people of that company at the time. And they were all like super smart uh and very innovative people so it was really a good fit for me you know and they had like the best parts in the world at that time really as far as they had a lot of really cool stuff like the most powerful brakes and you know really really good concepts and actually you know i got to give charlie cunningham a lot of credit because you know some of his concepts and i've had this problem in my job like his concepts were so far ahead of the curve that it, you know, became unmarketable, but he was doing stuff. He had like single speed, you know, one by chain guide, wide range cog sets in the early eighties, you know, like, and this is now just be, you know, now, just now becoming mainstream, you know? Mm -hmm. 
So it was cool to be, and then that was influential. And then that, and then I was racing really pretty good at that point and specialized, picked me up. That was my first sort of like big name racing contract was with Specialized. What year was that? Uh, Specialized would have been 1989. It's the first year wow. I raced for them. Okay, so help paint me a picture. What does a mountain bike in 1975 look like? <laughs> yeah. Well, I can show you one, but... Because, like, I've got this, like, Gary Fisher hanging up in my garage, yeah, and I yeah. think it's probably, like, a 95, and it just yeah. looks totally archaic. It's a rigid fork, you know, hard tail. It yep. just looks like a, you know, like a basic commuter road bike that is... Right. ...with grippy tires on it. Well, the stuff that I was doing, which was why I was building my own bikes, wasn't that I didn't really know the guys in Marin, but Marin was really heavily influenced early on by um, um, uh, uh, Richie, Tom Richie. And um, he had a very, he was a super strong, almost Olympic class road racer. And um, so he was very influenced by road bikes and road design. And so when he started building mountain bikes, he kind of went away from these other guys that, you know, the clunker guys were, were using Schwinn cantilever frames and, and, and then they started going in a different, a little bit different direction. But I think Tom Ritchie really influenced mountain bike design for a long time, not necessarily in a bad way, just in a way that really was oriented towards cross country, mm. you know? So these were like, you know, way back when he was trying to do the P21, like an under 20 pound bike, you know? And for people like me, that just didn't make sense because I was going to crumple the bike, you know, like it just didn't work for, for kind of what I wanted to do. But, um, I don't know. I lost my train of thought there. It's, it's, yeah, there's a million evolutions in there. And then you had the Kosky brothers who were building and well, there's then the Southern California gang too. And I didn't really know the guys in Colorado, but you had Cook brothers and they were doing, a, a, a pretty good mountain bike frame but it was really just a converted BMX frame but they made some of the best early forks so Cook Brother BMX fork was a Unicron fork that had a super like um, just imagine when we first started doing mountain bikes the steer tubes were still one inch steer tubes you know and so they had to be like ridiculously thick because you had this Unicron welded in there you know and um, and no suspension and and it was all steel, and so you're just trying to build stuff that didn't break, you know? Yeah. But there was all this kind of, even later on, there was really a lot of collage going on to build a really, to build really good mountain bikes. And then mine were kind of really way out on what you'd now almost, you know, the kind of riding we did was kind of like what was once called free riding, you know? But I wouldn't really call it free riding in the in the way the modern term is but the kind of riding we did was like it didn't really matter and we did some shuttling but we also rode we do like eight we'd, we'd see people out in the wilderness this is back before it was closed right and we we'd be doing like 60 80 mile rides and and we'd see people way out in the wilderness and be and we they'd be like well where'd you come from where are you going and we tell them where we were going. We're like, God, that's six days. We're going to be there in six days. You guys are going to be out tonight? And we're like, yeah, we're going to be out tonight, you know. And I'm like, no way, you know, that's crazy. And uh, so we were kind of doing epic rides, but then also 
just we had our lines and trails and different stuff that were you know i guess you could call them tracks kind of now and then we would also go do things like find cliffs to jump off of and yeah. you know kind of free riding you know so was it the was it the riding or the or the tinkering that kept you in mountain biking hmm i think you know honestly if there's a good part of your ego i mean it ended up being a pretty good career right but i think for me yeah some of it's psychological you know i was probably like you know the in grade school, I was a little kid at the bottom of the dog pile getting kicked all the time, you know? Yeah. So there was this element of, wow, I'm really good at something, bike racing. You know, like, like I said, I went to that one race. I went to the first race, I, and I was like, when I realized that, you know, I was in this race with some of the best riders in the world, and I was almost as fast as they were going downhill, you know? I just couldn't climb because I had a heavy bike, and I never tried to train for climbing. I just... We didn't matter really how long it took to get to the top, and then we would just blaze going down, you know? Yeah. And so there was just this, I, some sort of internal drive that just told me that I wanted to, to do that. And then um, I was always into the tinkering part. So I think yeah. there was this marriage between making really cool bikes and racing. You and know? feeling and then, the difference in your tinkering by yeah, riding it. Exactly. And which honestly, career-wise, was negative. That was a really negative thing until maybe the best career move, which was Shimano. So the reason I say that is, if you're a really good racer, doesn't matter what equipment you have. You know, even back then, there was guys like Tinker who suffered through a few seasons with just really inferior equipment. You know, really, really inferior equipment. I mean, it doesn't matter what who it was back then, but you know name brand stuff but just way inferior to what everybody else is using you know and just watching him suffer through that and i just never so there was this thing to me about a, a lot of how i would choose companies for contracts and stuff like that i wanted to support and that we could make an agreement with had to do with what stuff are we right on what kind of frames are we going to have what kind of parts are we going to use you know how are we going to you know, what is the, what competitive advantages do I get if I'm going to sign with you, you know? So I was always working, like, with Giant. With Specialized was cool. Like, I, I helped develop a little bit, and uh, not from a technical perspective, but just rider feedback perspective. Uh, the first production carbon mount bike frame, you know, and I remember that clearly because Ned's like, I don't trust it, give it to Thomas Berger. It's like Mikey in the Life commercial, you know? <laughs> We don't like it. Let Mikey try it, you know? And uh, so, but anyway, I'm like, Ned, this bike's awesome, you know? So anyway, that was, uh, you know, and then uh, next I was racing with Giant, and they were kind of new company. I mean, they weren't really new because Giant's been a Giant factory for a long time, and they were making bicycles, but then they decided they are going to do their own brand, you know, yeah. Giant Bicycle Brand. And Skip Hess, who was involved in mongoose his dad i think started mongoose or something i don't know he's been in the bike industry his whole idea but he was in the u.s for giant and they didn't really want to fund a racing team so he goes here's the deal paul i really want you to, to work with us so what i want to do is i want to have you but i'm going to pay you through rd budget you know but you're racing that's what you're going to do you're going to be a professional racer but I'm going to figure out how to get the money to make this happen. So just work with me. I'm going to take care of you. 
And so we did that. And that was, you know, on that, that setup was the best I ever did. And, you know, I don't know how that is for in your, in your side of the world with sponsorship and all that, but, uh, it's, um, there's frustrating parts to it. But anyway, I, I did the best I ever did in the world and, you know, in the, and during that time. And it was some pretty rough, and a lot of prototypes on the bike and prototype frame and, you know, using front suspension plus, uh, uh, plus, uh, um, uh, now I'm going to forget the name of it. He's, uh, flex stem, you know. So, so I had like four inches of travel, you know, like, uh. So part of it was handlebars, you know, like a squishy stem. And part of it was a two-inch travel fork, you know. But I got bronze medal with that. And I also got fourth in the cross country. A bronze the medal where? In the world's in, the, in Durango, Colorado. So that is kind of interesting, you know, whatever. I don't... It, it's sort of my claim to fame. It doesn't really mean anything by today's standards anymore. But I did get fourth in the cross country and third in the downhill and nobody in both disciplines has ever done that good you know at a, at a world so but maybe someday somebody will just win both of them you know huh. i think it's doable a guy like you know a guy like adam if he had been in the right place at the right time was maybe yeah that kind of rider you know so, so he's a very uh all-around rider you know and so there's those guys are not that maybe more common you know in nowadays just because of enduro i think so well it sounds like you've seen the whole or at least a, a big chunk of the growth from road bikes to what we're riding on now which i look at you know like the other day i'm out at klein and adam just puts me on his giant glory <laughs> and it's like it's just like i have a hard time believing what it makes the trail into you know, I'm going down five foot rock drops that feel like smaller and it feels like a powder landing. <laughs> it's just like so easy slamming on the brakes on shaley rock. The thing just slows down so fast. Yeah. It just, the, the bikes now are just insane. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a huge evolution and it's amazing because you never really think it can keep getting better and better at yeah. sort of the pace that it yeah. is. And but it does. Yeah. And it will continue. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. I, I kind of want to transition yep. into what you think the, how the experience has changed as the technology has changed. Yeah. That's a good question. That's a great question. Um, yeah. It's it's definitely well. There's been a lot of changes. Like it used to be cool to go do three hour mountain bike ride, you know. And now I think most people, there's not a lot of people that regularly ride like longer rides, you know. I think that that is sort of going away. And that was kind of like used to be kind of on my short side of things, really, you know. And so I think there's been a transition there. I think just the mainstreaming of it has been a transition, and I think that the the quality of the bikes has really made a big difference. This is no different than the skiing industry. Like it used to be, there was a small handful of people that really knew how to ski in powder mm -hmm. period, because it took a long time. It took years of summering to really <laughs> figure out how to ski deep powder with these ridiculously stiff, long old boards, you know? And it was just so hard. 
Yeah, and it just technically impossible. Yeah, it was just took a lot, a lot of learning to learn how to ski powder good and how to have enough speed to be able to work those skis in all different kinds of weights and conditions of snow and and so I think mountain bikes are the same thing. So you know the good part is is that you know I have a job and there's a lot of people that enjoy it and and um, somehow the technology is very fascinating. Yeah, so I, th- I think it's good, I, but I think what it's done is that, you know, there's a lot of people out there that didn't, you know, like, kind of grow up on the Boy Scout side of it. It's like, yeah, you should have, I see people out at Maston, I mean, this time of year, they're riding in shorts, and they come back, and they're like, my hands are really frozen, and I'm looking, I'm like, well, yeah, dude, like, you don't have the right gear on, you know, like, and... I don't know. I, I'm just. Uh, okay. I think I'm so old school. I guess I, I guess I have some specific. Okay. Questions. Yeah, do that. What about Strava? What is what has Strava done to mountain biking, and what are the what are the pros and cons of Strava? Well, the pros are just that people want to, you know, measure their dick size, I guess. <laughs> but but um, I prefer to do that in person. You know, that's my the rulers. Yeah. Well, yeah, we could do that, but I'm going to lose that one for sure. So, but on a bike, I'm willing to measure up, but I, I don't, I, I prefer to do that just out riding. You know, if I'm going to a race, I'm going to race. And I think it's been a really overall a negative thing. And so I, I think there used to be a lot more courtesy on the trails. And I think part of that going away is the fact that some guy is on his best time you know and yeah. and i got to make this time to get back to phil's trailhead or whatever and um you know personally i think that the you started this conversation off about adventure i think it's very all the electronic stuff and mapping and all this stuff is very very detrimental to the aspect of mountain biking that i enjoy that for a lot of modern riders is gone. And I don't, I don't like it. Like we'll get into that maybe too. Like, uh, my perspective is you ride your bike for whatever reason you want to ride it, you know, but I have always tried to give back to people, you know, as part of my personal mission statement. In fact, you know, a sense of adventure, if you're willing to, to, to put your, to make yourself vulnerable to that. Right. Mm -hmm. But that's sort of hard when, You've got your Strava route, and you've got your Garmin GPS set, and you've got a map of the entire area, and every intersection has a has an intersection number on it, and it's like you know exactly where you time. are. Yeah, right. It's like, yeah, where's the adventure in that? Like, so to me, there's this part that's missing, and I'm certainly not going to blame Strava for that. I think the negative part of Strava is just people racing every day and not... I mean, I love shredding my bike really fast, and I, at one point, really loved racing. More and more over time, I don't enjoy racing as much, although, you know, the last couple big races I did were, like, BC Bike Race, right? And to me, it's like, yeah, I'm not, I can't show up not fit, because I think once you've been a pro racer, it's just so demoralizing. It doesn't even matter where you you place, necessarily. It's just that feeling of, not being able to do as good as you could do is really tough in a race. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you, if I just show up prepared, like the last time I went and did BC bike race, I did the preparation and I showed up and I was fit and rested and ready to go. Right. And it was super fun. I had a great time, you know, it was, uh, it was really good. But 
the, what I don't like is that when I get there, like on day one, I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm just, just that nervousness that I used to have because, you know, this is what I do for a living and I need to perform. And, and so I, maybe this is for me, it's like there's a part of bike riding that I enjoy completely differently <clears throat> when um, when I'm not racing. And, you know, like Adam and Carl and those guys, those guys are great examples. Like I'll go out and ride with those guys and I'll ride so fast with them. Like I know I shouldn't be riding that fast, but because I'm with Carl and Adam I'm, and they're behind me and I'm like, well, somebody will scrape me off the trail at least or whatever, you know, and Adam's always like, he's, he's always like, you're so entertaining to ride behind. I'm like, yeah, it's because I'm on the edge of the, the edge of it the whole time. Like I get it. Of course it's entertaining, you know, but it's, it's fun. Uh, you know, it's, it's really fun. But I, again, that's, that's more my Strava, you know, it's like, okay. So, you put your fast buddies behind you and you try yeah, to. Or in front of me, you know, I can, yeah. I'll, you, 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 yeah, whatever. I don't, I'm, I'm a slow old guy, but I can still, you know, ride pretty quick. So. And I see your van at the Masson Trailhead all the time. Every time <laughs> I drive past, it's just a staple right there. You're still loving riding your bike. Why do you ride your bike, and what is what is uh, a day on your bike look like these days? Well, yeah, it it varies a lot. My typical mo these days is like I'm riding pretty short right now. It's just cold out, and I've got a lot of stuff going on around the house. I'm trying to build a shop next year, so I'm moving buildings, and I'm just uh, I'm just super busy. So my rides have been shorter lately, you know, and so I have ongoing stuff I'm working on. I'll probably get some more stuff right before Christmas and then uh, stuff you it, it, development, yeah, bike development stuff. stuff. So I'm constantly pretty much, I have, um, it's always ongoing. I always have stuff on my bike. So a lot of the stuff I'm doing right now is I'm doing a bunch of data acquisition. So again, this is, this is the funny thing is, is that we talk about, you know, not liking all the electronics on my bike, but the engineers want me to have that stuff, everything all the time. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I got to have heart rate, power, uh, you know, mileage, everything. They want all the data all the time and I got to enter all the gear data. So we're, we're analyzing, you know, speed, RPM, how much time in this gear and that gear and blah, 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 blah. You know, and sometimes we'll, we do other things where we're going to compare. So those parts are on your everyday bike that you're riding. Yeah, and it's the crazy thing about my world is I don't have an everyday bike. So I live in a world of terminal cannibalism. <laughs> you know, and, and from a tester's perspective, the funniest thing is, is that what I really want is just a 100% production bike, you know. Yeah. Because I don't have to think, think, think about, okay, that... You know, prototype part is doing this or that. I mean, it could be, could be brakes, cal- you know, brake levers, calipers, pads, rotors, right? So every time I'm out riding, I kind of have to make this mental note about what's on my bike and what what am I trying to analyze and and some of the stuff like some of the data acquisition stuff's really easy. Go ride your bike, mm-hmm. just just ride your bike, and then we're comparing different things. So yeah, okay. I'll go ride in situation A, situation B. Yeah. Okay, Adam tells me you've been working on some e-bike stuff lately, yeah. is that right? Yeah, yeah. Tell me about e-bikes yeah. and what they, I mean, I hear, uh, I've, I've ridden on that e-bike that Adam has, mm-hmm. it just absolutely blew my mind, I couldn't stop laughing, 
<laughs> I couldn't stop laughing. I yeah. just put it on power mode. I go yeah. tearing up out of the back of the pump track, just yeah. right up, right through the neighbor's yard, just the tires spinning and doing a wheelie yeah. up a hill that I could never pedal up. Right. And just laughing and laughing and laughing. Right. And then turn around and come down. And it feels like a downhill bike and squishy and big suspension and so fun. Um, but I hear like there seems to be some some really negative backlash in the mountain bike industry to something that looks like a mountain bike but is not. Yeah, I think that I think the big problem well there's a lot there's a lot of issues, but 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 the reality is that we got to back up a little and say, okay, where did this start? It started in Europe. So in Europe, you have to understand EU number 1 non-democratically elected body, you know, it's a bunch of bureaucrats, but they make rules that govern this broad perspective of people and they made an e-bike rule that that says this if you are under 25 kilometers an hour and you're under 250 watts and it's a pedelec in other words you it's you have to pedal it to get power can't have a throttle you're under 250 watts doesn't go over 25 kilometers an hour you can ride that anywhere anywhere a bicycle is allowed anywhere any city any park, uh-huh. any street, any, any trail. Right. And so, first of all, the United States is completely different because we're not gonna we're not gonna have you know every county, every uh, city, every state, every federal thing, every federal land agency can make its own rules for what you can and can't do. Right. So from an industry perspective, there are certain people that were really pushing this, which is it's okay in Europe, then it's okay in America. We should just adopt these kind of regulations and push it into America. And I have a lot of negative uh, thoughts about that. Number one, I think every land manager should have their right. They, they, they shouldn't have you know, this unelected body uh, dictating to them what they can and can't do, or the fact that you know maybe in this area, Mountain bikers don't really want e-bikers, but in this area, maybe that's okay. And that should be up to the land manager to figure that out, right? So um, in our country, so far, the BLM and land management have already come out, which I believe is the correct decision, and said that's a motorized vehicle. It has motor on it and power. And I totally agree with this. So the, the problem is they took this thing from Europe. Because they were able to ride it anywhere on any trail, as long as you met these certain regulations... You could ride it anywhere on any trail. Then it became a bicycle, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the things I spent a lot of time on, because this has been coming for a long time. I'm just going to tell you this is nothing new. It's been coming for a long time. I've been working on it for, um, what, well over 10 years. So um, this isn't new development for me. It's not like I am just started testing e-bikes. It's just now... I'm riding stuff that's production, and we're making one of the best systems in the world right now. We're on, that's we're really on top on the e-bike stuff, but um, but that bringing that sort of dictatorial style to the U.S. and fundamentally, I'm a mountain biker. I've spent 25 years plus building trails and maintaining trails. Right? I wasn't an e-biker that fought all those battles. It wasn't an e-biker that went to the BLM meeting 20 years ago that I was telling you about earlier that was identifying Klein Buttes as a primary mountain bike area. It wasn't an e-biker that was doing that, right? It was mountain bikers that, that made up organizations like CODA 
and all these other organizations that did the work on the ground. It wasn't e-bikers that did it. It was mountain bikers that did it. So there's a bit of, uh, I think, well-deserved resistance that says, hey, you know, you want e-bike trails? Then go build the e-bike trails. And I got nothing against that. And there's, there's some people uh, in the BLM, and, and I don't know about the Forest Service as much, but uh, there's some, some people that are going to start doing that. They're going to start developing e-bike trail systems. Now, at some point, you got to ask yourself the question, you know, where does it make sense? Where doesn't it make sense? And again, the BLM has already clarified their position, which is that if it's a non-motorized trail, then it can't have an e-bike on it. So in the, in, in the case of Bend, Oregon, just, just to clarify specifically local to us, um, almost the entire Phil's network, but not all of it, there's places and I could tell those to you, but it doesn't really matter, but almost the entire network is on Forest Service Trail and all of that Forest Service Trail, except for there's a few good miles, is all uh, non-motorized trail, which means it's against law for, for e-bikes. But uh, ultimately, you know, I think it really comes down to respect, right? So, and the other thing is, is that people being not intellectually honest. So, so one of the things that's happened is people have done these studies. People have done these studies that that say, well, e-bikes really don't have any more impact than a regular mountain bike. Now, they're very industry slanted in, in, in a lot of ways. So one was they, they went to this place in Colorado, this park, and they did this study where people rode around with bikes and e-bikes, right? And the people on regular bikes didn't know if they were e-bikes or did not e-bikes. And then they asked people at the trailhead, hey, what do you think about the e-bike, right? And uh, they're like, was it any problem for you on the trail? Well, no, okay, great. So therefore it doesn't impact. Well, maybe it does if you're climbing a trail that you climb every day and you're, you know, you go going back to Strava, you know, you're top 10 on Strava and then that guy just blows by you, right? Maybe that's not really the thing that you want on your local trail, you know, I don't know. And then, uh, uh, but yeah, just that, that, that thing about, um, you know, where is it, uh, ethical? And then, uh, I know what I was going to say, which is, uh, really related to that is the fact that, you know, from, this is like, you're going to tell me that Einstein's theory of relativity is inaccurate, right? Or thermodynamics is, is, is hypothesis on thermodynamics because you cannot possibly tell me that a bike that has more weight and more power does less damage to the trail. It's just false. It's completely false premise. So you can argue that the current mountain bike trail standard by a well-built trail builder designer can hold up to whatever that vehicle can put out but to say that it's the same is just a lie it's just a lie like i don't care how many studies you show me that say it has no more impact on the trail than a regular bike and it's bullshit both from thermodynamic principle and also i say it's bullshit from my personal experience right and you you said in our conversation that you were going up a hill that you couldn't even clean before and you're wheeling, right? Yeah. That, that's exactly what I'm talking about. It's simply not, it's a falsification to say that it has less impact on the trails. Yeah.
it's going to have more impact on more miles of trail. For sure, it has to. People can ride more trail that they never used to ride before, and they can go up steeper stuff that they never used to be able to clean, you know. And going down, you know, it's again, it's just thermodynamics. If your bike is 40 pounds heavier, you have to apply X amount of brake force yeah. to slow the bike down. I mean, it's just... So So what I think's happened is people come in and they're like, these are just like bicycles. Well, first of all, I'm not an idiot. And they're not just like bicycles, you know? So we can step back from all of that sort of way of how that all looks, okay? And go back into Paul's little world. And so in my <laughs> little world, in my little world, here's the reality is... My job is to make stuff better, right? So what the world I live in there is, has to do with algorithms, you know? It has to do with uh, what, how, how to make an electric mountain bike, you know, uh, uh, an e-bike, feel almost exactly like a regular bike. Like, that's the target. The target is how do we make this vehicle so that it is the most bike-like vehicle out there. And that's what we want to do. You know, Shimano's a bicycle company. They don't really want to get in to this motorized world or motorized debate. And they honestly have been the most conservative out of all the big companies. And, and part of that maybe is because of my influence. I actually get the ear of the top people in the corporation sometimes read my reports. You know, the top people read those reports. And I spent a year basically explaining all these things I've explained to you. You know, who it was that developed the trail system, why people are sensitive about this, what, what the reality is. And then, you know, even, I mean, from a strictly development uh, perspective, bringing those regulations from Europe and bringing them in is, is kind of good for, for, for the corporate side because it's like you got these little slots. You got this kind of bike and this kind of bike and this kind of bike. But from a development perspective, right, what do I want to make? I want to build the best e-bike, right? Mm -hmm. So when regulation is getting in the way of me building the best e-bike, then I get super frustrated. So I'll give you a quick example. In, in Oregon, in Oregon, before where they're working on national legislation, some stuff just got passed in California. But in Oregon, you used to be able to have up to 750 watts, which is a giant motor, bigger than you would ever need on an electric bike. And you'd have to have a huge battery pack. But uh, that, that's kind of cool. But it used to be at 20 miles an hour. You, you could go up to 20 miles per hour under the power of the motor. But then it doesn't say that you can't pedal faster than that. So my crazy mind is we're going to build an algorithm that allows you exactly the amount of power you can have going 20 miles an hour and all the time. Yeah. And so you can go 40 if you can pedal that hard, right? And that's what the regulation says. Like, okay, let's fall. Why do we have to cut ourselves to 20? Anyway, sorry, I'm long-winded. No, I love it. I love it. Okay. No, I think that's a good... I think that the, the regulation is a good little transition. I'd like to hear what you think about the especially currently the influx of politics in the outdoor industry kind of in the abstract and you know most people around here know that you've got a big sticker that says legalize the constitution on the side of your sprinter van so maybe you could compare to me the ideas of conservation and conservatism Mm. And how you think those are related? Yeah, well, they're completely related. And, um, you know, 
most conservatives aren't that conservative when you really look at the reality of that and what conservation means. And I, and I think there's a huge difference between, you know, conservation and certain elements of the green movement. And I, I see some improvements there. Uh, it locally, you know, we have this, the Bend, West, West Bend Forest Management Project, which is an amazing collaboration. You know, you have finally uh, the Sierra Club and these other organizations coming in and um, uh, you have these organizations coming in and saying, yeah, we understand that either everything has to burn or we need to cut trees down, you know? And that hasn't been the position of the Sierra Club and Oregon Wild ever, mm-hmm. right? But the reality is that, and this is what most people don't get, you know, and I, I'm, uh, I wouldn't say that I'm a climate skeptic. I hate that term. I would say that I'm a climate realist and that the data is only what the data is and the data can't explain what the data doesn't know and that a lot of the a lot of that data is driven by how you get funding grant funding you know and so it's I I'm a little frustrated with where that all is now but besides that my point really was that 100 years ago the decisions that the Forest Service and other block land management, including Oregon and Oregon and California, was to stop fire. And before that hundred years, fires raged every year along the West un- unintruded and got to burn mosaic. And, and, and in forest practice, you understand what, what mosaic means is that then you have a much more fire resistant where these different fires burn in different places on different years, and you build this structure of trees that isn't nearly as prone to catastrophic wildfires. So this happened 100 years ago. So if you want to blame humans, you need to blame the humans from 100 years ago, not global warming right now for for catastrophic forest fires. Simply look at a picture from 100 years ago of Central Oregon and the density of trees, and look at a picture, go out there in the woods today, even where they're thinning, and look at the difference in density. Completely different reality. Like, we used to have a much more fire-resistant forest, you know. And, and some, some structures, obviously, they're like lodgepole pine, for example. Often their cycle is to go into a full stand, a giant stand, and then it burns to the ground. You know, that's part of how it grows a new stand. You know, it's far... These are fire... A lot of the West is fire-oriented things. So, but anyway, I see good good news on that side. And then, you know, I get frustrated with. Uh, I'll, I'll just give you a couple specific examples. Um, I get a little bit frustrated with uh, with Congressman Blumenauer. Um, I think he's a great guy, but you have a guy that comes out and says, "Yeah, I'm pro bike," and then uh, uh, proceeds to vote for things that that really curtail mountain bike access. You know. And I don't, I don't think that people have really called them out on that effectively because, you know, when, when you work, I, I did some work on the Mount Hood wilderness. I spent a couple years working on that with lawyers from IMBA and, you know, we had a coalition going together to try to negotiate some land access. It was basically, we lost 200 plus miles of trail that we've been riding on for 20 years, which I think is total bullshit. Like, you know, these are contributing members of society. We didn't damage any of those areas. There wasn't any issue with bikes being there. It was a land grab. And then you have, again, Bloom and Hour, and you have Senator Wyden, 
And these are, I respect Senator Wyden tremendously. I really do. He's not my guy, but, you know, I, I respect Senator Wyden. I've spent enough time with him. He's a pretty straight shooter. But he told the public, where is it, where it is me as a senator to curtail your, 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 your ability to recreate in the, in the public lands, right? And he said that during this time when we lost 200 miles of trail to, to, you know, new wilderness, you know? And it was just like, that's bullshit. You know, that's the kind of political stuff that just tweaks you. I'll tell you, I'm going to tell you when we got done with that process and it was a lot of time and it was, it got emotional and it got emotional and uh, we, um, at the very end of it, there was a lot of stuff, a lot of carpets. Like this is where I really got an education about how organizations like Oregon Wild and Sierra Club and other really powerful environmental groups operate. And it's not clean. It's not fair. It's not honest. You know, you can be in these meetings and they're like, yeah, we really want to have you at the table, you know, and you can be a part of this process, you know. And it really, there was a lot of fabrication and lie and a lot of stuff that they pulled at the last second that added a bunch more miles to the whole thing. You know, at the beginning of the process, they're like, you guys, there's only 50 miles that you ever ride that's going to be involved on this. And I'm like, okay, well, we need to look at the maps, right? And then we started looking at the maps and we're like, what do you mean 50 miles? Like, that's, that's a fabrication of, of what's out here. Why are you, why, why would you tell people that there's only 50 miles that, are, that, that wouldn't be rideable. It's just a fabrication, you know? And this was the beginning of the process. And then two years later, at the end of it, I felt like, you know, and it, this isn't really a bad thing about IMBA. This is just my feeling that, that IMBA wanted us to sort of toe the political line and toe the party line and don't make too much noise. And, you know, you guys are doing a great job and this is a good negotiation, right? And all that, and I learned a ton from their lawyers about how stuff really works in Congress, and how and how and how it happens. And I got to go to D.C. and and do that thing, but um, it just doesn't. At the at the end of the day, when we were all done with that, it just felt like I had a broomstick um, poked up my rectum. Literally, that's what I felt like. I was bitter with the process. I was really upset. There was tons of, we had, there was a bunch of places where we had hikers that said, hikers that said, we can't, we're not going to be able to maintain these trails. Simply impossible because we can't use chainsaws anymore. And we would bring that up in public meetings. We're like, look, a lot of the stuff is going to get closed down because people simply don't have the time to go out there with the misery whip with the giant handsaw and cut down 24 inch trees all day long to get these trails open. Yeah. So what is the, I, I, it seems like there's a connection between the first time you ever raced, you resented and refused to wear a jersey with a logo on it, to now the role that you have with access seems skeptical of, of varying interests. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think it's just been an education process. You know, I there's I have a lot of friends that are, you know, they're in the environmental community, and I respect them, and I respect the fact of what it is that they're that they're trying to do. You know, I really do. And uh, 
you know, Eric Fernandez, who's like, if not the head dude, one of the head dudes at Oregon Wild, you know, when I first met him, he was, I don't know, he wasn't the head dude, but he's pretty close now, I think. And then, um, you know, when we sit down long enough to really respect what each other are saying and where we're coming from and what wilderness means to us, we're on the exact same page. And the only difference is that I don't see any issue with, uh, with bikes being allowed in wilderness as long as the land manager that is governing those lands um, doesn't think it's a, either social or otherwise any kind of a conflict or erosion or some other issue that the land manager you know, can identify and quantify and go, look, we, you know, at Green Lakes, we can't have bikes because it's, there's 50 million people. And I would argue, why even call it wilderness? You know, I, I've, I've argued with these guys for years. I'm like, you know, look at Steens, for example. As soon as you put wilderness stamp on it, way more traffic, way more people, always, mm-hmm. you know. And so and it's, it seems it, it seems to me that there's this this uh, the at the core of that frustration is it was nurtured when you were in high school and possibly before with your parents, but that you were in a position that you negotiated with your teachers <laughs> and in a real negotiation no neither party gets to say no because i said so right and so that seems like your frustration now that you know a legitimate study with real concerns should be addressed but you shouldn't be able to say no because i said so Right. And then that's what, you know, when you, when you deal with bureaucracies, then that's, you realize that that's exactly what a bureaucracy is. And that's what government is. Right. That's exactly what government is. And, um, you know, I've, I've got a great relationship with the management and I have had less in the last couple of years, but, you know, six years on the board with CODA, but, uh, with the forest service and trust me, it's been a bunch of times where it's just like, that's the way it is. And then that, that's the meeting's over. Yeah. That's it. Well, that's the government. My, you know, the government is the monopoly of the use of force in a given area. And so you can argue all you want, but the gun is only in one direction. Yeah. We could, you know, constitutional income. Do you have any? You know, but I'll tell you what. So I don't believe that I I have very little constitutional income. I would argue that I have a little bit of rental income and I have a little bit of interest income, very little and a few other things. But the rest of it's wages and salaries. And and in my opinion, those that's that's not taxable. That's that's an unconstitutional tax. It was never intended to uh, to tax wages and salary. It just. It just wasn't, that wasn't what the income tax was about. Income tax at the time the 13th Amendment was adopted was about, um, was about uh, uh, what we now call unearned income. You know, you were sitting back and you were collecting rent and you made dividends on a good investment. And that was unearned. You didn't do anything. You were sitting on your couch watching TV. Money was coming in. But it was never intended to tax workers or in, in fact the the on the, the 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 debates on the house and senate floor said the opposite that this this new taxation was to 
get at the people that were making all this unearned income and to tax them and not tax the working man. That, that was the original intention. And of course, you know, looking at the history of it, the fact that, you know, the Federal Reserve was, was, was started right before that, then you know that they had, there was other intentionalities at the beginning. But it took a while to really manifest and get to where they wanted it to be, you know. And the, well, I have a hard time even understanding what unearned income would possibly mean because if you build a house and then rent it out to someone, you have very much earned the rent. If you have made a good investment and you get a dividend from it, you have very much earned the dividend. Right. Unearned income, I don't know what that means. Unearned income to me is theft. That's what taxation is. That is unearned income. You take it from someone using force. That is the only way you can have income without earning it. That's right. Well, it's, it's all the illegal things that the government gets to do that if we do, we go to prison for. And it goes in, you know, it goes on day on, day out. And, I, and you know, you're a little bit younger than me. And so it's, you know, my perspective has changed because, you know, I like my comfort, you know. And, and there's a really clear line. I think the weirdest thing was that, that whole time after 9-11 because my feeling was like, well, of course they're going to spy on every human they're going to spy on every american and so i'll just tell you i'm really i'm really conservative on my taxes and, and you know that being said i've set it up the smartest way i possibly can you know i went to the best accountants and i'm like i want to do whatever i can to legitimately take the biggest tax cut i can possibly get of course why yeah you? right and then the, and the funny thing is is in today's society then you know these are one these are the hypocrisies that I laugh at and uh, it's funny I got to tell you this one story so <laughs> I had this account guy right and he's the guy that got me going on this he's like you're gonna save a bunch of money you just need to do it you got to push all the paperwork right and he's very progressive liberal right he's he's passed he's since passed away good friend of mine but um, he used to go on and on about this and uh, um, and he used to go on and on about how the evil corporations this and the evil corporations that, right? At the same time, he's setting me up as a corporation, right? And I told him finally one day, I go, Dan, at what point do I become an evil corporation? You know, like, like really, seriously, like when do I become the evil corporation? And he's like, well, you're not there yet. And <laughs> so this is a guy that's very, very progressive liberal that, that I was my fishing buddy for four or five years there, right? And so, and about like in the last year before he passed, um, and he passed kind of suddenly out of accident and with some other medical stuff. But anyway, um, in the last, in our last year, when we, we spent a little time together, he's like, you know, I'm starting to come around to some of your libertarian thinking, you know, I've been thinking about what you said, you know, and sometimes I really don't, I, I really get that it's, you know, that there isn't fairness out there, you know, and that the ends don't justify the means, you know. And I'm like, it's always cool. That, that was cool. One, one more convert. Yeah, I, I don't know. He's converted in heaven, right? He's converting people in heaven now. But well, I think that's a pretty broad range of topics there, Paul. Yeah, I think that's good for our first installment. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for spending the time. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it.